Out podcast, where we are mapping the frontier between traditional and indie publishing. This is Emily Einolander, back from hiatus, and we are pleased today to share with you a live recording from Jan's Bookstore in Beaverton as part of the Business of Being an Author series. Today's topic, Knowing Your Audience. Our guests will be our own Corinne Kalaski. Brianne Marie Robinson, and Jessica Brody. The sound quality is not quite what we wanted it to be due to some technical difficulties, but I've cleaned it up as much as possible, and hopefully it will not mar your experience too much. Let's get into it. All right. Well, thank you all for coming. Um, my name is Emily Einolander. I'm the host of the Hybrid Pub Scout podcast. And um, this is my co-host, Corinne Kalaski. That's right. And we're recording live. We're recording live from Jens in Beaverton. I'm going to introduce our three panelists. The first one is Corinne, who listeners will know already. Uh, Corinne Kalaski has spent 15 years working in the book publishing industry. She began her career as a publicist at HarperCollins and has spent time in Nashville, the Bay Area, and Portland working in both marketing and publicity roles for mid-sized publishers as well as small indies. And then we have, next to her, we have Jessica Brody. And Jessica Brody is the author of more than 15 books for teens, tweens, and adults, including Addie Bell's Shortcut to Growing Up, A Week of Mondays, Boys of Summer, 52 Reasons to Hate My Father, the three books in the Sci-Fi Unremembered trilogy, and Save the Cat writes a novel. She's yay! <laughs> She's also the author of the Descendants School of Secrets series, based on the hit Disney Channel original movie Descendants. Her books have been translated and published in over twenty-three countries. And Unremembered and Fifty Two Reasons to Hate My Father are currently in development as major motion pictures. She lives with her husband and four dogs and splits her time between California and Colorado. And then at the very end there, we have <laughs> Marie Robinson lives in the Pacific Northwest with her husband, son, and fur babies. During the day, she wrangles her child, who was clearly a crocodile in a past life. And by nights and weekends, she writes about women who get happily ever afters with more than one man because they shouldn't have to choose. She loves fantasy and creating engaging worlds for her readers to disappear into. If she's not writing or child wrangling, she can often be found on trails in the woods or climbing mountains. Let's give our lovely panelists a little round of applause. And uh, let's just get this ball rolling. So this question is for everyone on the panel, and it is, how does one figure out who their audience is in the first place? Um, I think I found my audience by mistake. <laughs> um, I started out writing uh, women's fiction and because I thought, well, I'm an adult. I should write for adults. What do I know about being a teenager? It's been too, too long. Um, and I wrote two women's fiction novels that really did not sell very well. Um, and then I came up with a new idea um, about three 30-year-old women who you know, get together to take karma into their own hands and get revenge on all the men who have been mean to them. And I pitched it to my agent, and she said, 30-year-old women getting revenge on people? That sounds really sad. And I was like, okay, well, I won't mention I based it on my own friends, but whatever. 
<laughs> and uh, so she's like, that's a terrible idea, don't write that. But I was really determined, and so I had this kind of, you know, stroke of genius, and I said, well, what if they're not 30? What if they're, I don't know, 17? And she said, oh, see, that's funny. <laughs> so I wrote the book as uh, with three 17-year-olds, and I'd never even thought about writing for teens, and um, it sold. And uh, I've been writing for teens ever since, and now tweens. And so I feel like I just, I, I, the, the story comes to me, and I think the audience kind of follows based on what story pops in my head. Okay, so I'm going to say the complete opposite, because I'm an indie author, and I'm an indie author who likes to pay my bills with my stories. Um, so I'm always going to be coming at this with a business mindset. So when I first started uh, my Marie Robinson pen name, that's not my first pen name. I've been writing for a few years now, indie publishing for a few years. I, for my first, or for this pen name, I went out and I looked at the market. I saw what genre I could write in that would allow me to write the type of stories I wanted, which was romantic fantasy. And I was like, okay, I don't want to have a day job. I just had a kid. I'm on maternity leave. I don't want to go back in 90 days. What? Who can I write to? And I saw this romance subgenre, reverse harem. And I was like, okay, cool. They like romantic fantasy. I just have to have a romance with uh, three or more guys. And I can do this. And so that's how I did it and how I found the audience and how I would say if you're an independent author who wants to find your market and your audience, you go to the reviews. Like you figure out what genre you want to write in and then go read the books you love, like the tropes you love, like take notes of what tropes you love and then write those tropes in the genre that you want. And then once you have that, you can put it out to that audience and because you've already done your research on your audience, you know what tropes are doing well in that genre because you've read it and you're writing the tropes that you like, your audience is already built in and then you can be like, look, you like these books, I also like this book, and look, I wrote a book. And so you market to your audience. Well, that perfectly leads into the next question, which was, um, what's the difference between audience for self-published books and traditionally published books? So you've kind of answered the indie side of it a little bit already. Um, do you want to speak, Jessica, to the traditional side? Do you think that there's a difference? I think there's a big difference. Okay, you speak to it first then. Okay. <laughs> so I have, I started, I put my toes in the water in traditional publishing, and that's where I really wanted to be before I transitioned to independent publishing. And I've noticed, and I've done a few conferences where we've talked about this, that the people who read traditional publishing will often read independent publishing books. Like, if you read a Harlequin published novel, you're going to read an indie romance novel. However, I've noticed that if you only read pulp fiction, which is what most independent authors write, most of those readers won't transition to traditional. And that's usually because they these are the readers that are reading two to three to even four books a day and yeah it's intense they speed read but so financially they can't keep up with their reading habit with traditional publishing because take for kindle unlimited they have all the options to read all of these books technically 
for their $9.99 membership subscription, whereas that's potentially one paperback novel. Mm-hmm. Unless, like, you're great and you have a wonderful brick uh, independent bookstore. Like Jams here in Beaverton. <laughs> with free coffee. No, so I do think that there is a difference. And I also think that there is a difference that the readers expect in quality. And that is not at all shaming independent books at all. Because I'm an independent author. Like, I I deal with this all the time. But these readers for independent books typically want the good story. They want a good story. If you don't have any typos or any weird sentencing that's going to throw them out of the story, they don't care if it's award-winning level editing or going to be nominated for a Hugo or Worldcon. Like, they don't care. They just want the escapism. And so... I think that in in uh, readers for self-publishing are more forgiving towards books than the readers who typically are with traditional focused. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah I have really nothing to add. I, I really have nothing to add because I, I like her perspective that she's comparing them. I never self-published. I've only traditionally published. So I don't, I really can't speak to any differences because I only have experience in one. Okay. So it's like, this is my experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so, Corinne, I have a question for you. Oh, oh I should be speaking into this one. I have a question for you, Corinne. Yes. As a uh, marketing professional mm-hmm. in the world of traditional book publishing, how does an author get the reader that they want to read their book to actually pick up the book in the mm-hmm. first place and read it? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I don't know, I was thinking about this the other day about like what works these days because so everything is, you know, online, social media, and blah, 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 which is great. I'm not at all a pretty purist. Yes, I am. But, (laughs) anyway, but I do think, I know, um, I do think there is a lot of value in sort of like going to like in-person events, that kind of stuff, like going to like book signings, going to trade shows, to conferences where you know your readers are going to be and establishing that sort of in-person like personal connection with people because I feel like that's really lost these days because everything lives online. Um, so I think that's a really valuable thing to do. And it's worth the author's time to like est- just start sort of establishing those connections with people that you know already are going to be interested in your books. Um, that would be how I would start doing it anyway. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I you know it's funny. Everyone's like, oh, you have to have Instagram, you have to have a website, you have to put all this money and all these, you know, you have to post regularly. But the research keeps coming back that it's all about word of mouth. And, like, the most the most marketing you can get is from that one person who tells seven, who tells seven, who tells seven. And that's, unfortunately, out of our control. So the things that we can control is you can write a really good book and you make sure that it's, you know, it's the kind of quality that people are going to talk about. Um, you can get a really great cover, which unfortunately is for traditional publisher published authors is not always in our control. Most of the time, it's the publisher who chooses the cover. Um, but having a cover that really speaks to the right audience, and I'm very torn about that whole that whole thing because my books tend to be um, geared towards girls, female girl teen readers, so they tend to have a lot of pink and hearts. And things like that. And on one hand, I'm like, great, because girls are picking it up. And on the other hand, I'm like, really? 
Are we really still like pitching heart pink hearts to girls? Like, have we not come farther than that? And then on, on the other hand, I'm like, why can't boys read books about girl main characters? Um, you know, yeah. when it's the other way around, it's not a problem. Girls have no problem reading, picking up a book that looks like a boy book, but they won't. You know, it it often does not go the other way. So. I'm getting really off topic with my rant, but um, <laughs> that's the way I love it. <laughs> um, Girl fist pumping you. Okay. Well, anyway, so the yeah, so I think you know it, it is sort of this double-edged sword. Like you want to hit your market with the right cover, but at the same time, are we isolating uh, potential readers with a cover that they may not have picked up? Um, when I wrote my Unremembered trilogy, the first book had a very gender-neutral cover. It did have a, a girl on it, but it just did not. It did not read like girl book. Um, and I got a lot of boy readers picking that up, and it was great. And then for the sequel, unfortunately, it had a picture of two people kissing on it. Even though it was not a romance, it was still a sci-fi. And... <laughs> you know, it was a sci-fi, yeah. Um, and I was like, please don't put the kissing people on, because the boy... I, I'm going to lose my boy readers. And I think that I did. Um, you know, maybe not all of them, but enough. So it's something that I'm definitely struggling with on both sides. Like you, you really have, it's, it's a fine balance. I don't know if you can speak to that more from coming from a publisher. Well, unfortunately I do not have any say in the covers because which nobody has any say. But, Who is saying you know, I will say. say. I know it's true. Like a couple, <laughs> a couple jobs ago to a different publisher, we would all, like everyone in the office would kind of sit around and like talk about the different options and critique yeah. them and consider them. Um, but at least where I worked, like the author's opinions were also taken into consideration. At so, my house, it is, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, I've had ex different experiences. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah, because I feel like that's pretty crucial. I mean, you don't want the author to be like, what the hell is this? I hate this. <laughs> it also you know? depends so, on your literary agent. Oh, yes. Do talk about that. It also depends on your literary agent. Um, I When I was pitching a few romance novels to, or Christian romance novels, to a publisher, one thing that my author really wanted was control over, not total control over the cover, but veto rights, basically. She was like, I, I want to make sure that this is an appropriate cover. Mm -hmm. And so that was something that I did argue for. And so anyone wanting to go traditionally publish and get a literary agent, when you finally book one, when they're selling your book and there's the, um, the contract with the editor when they're negotiating, what I always told my authors was, hey, what are your main things that you really want in your contract and what are you willing to compromise on? And some people wanted at least in their input on the cover. And if you want that, tell your agent that because then they can pitch that to the editor. You might get shut down, but nothing ventured, nothing gained. If you don't ask for those options, you're not going to be given them. They're not, publishers are baseline run. They're going to try to make money. And so they're not going to offer any concessions to you if you don't ask for them. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they're, that's fine because they're paying you money and they're also trying to make money off of you. But you do have more leeway than you would expect. But that's when your editor or your agent and client relationship comes in. Well, and it's why we have agents when we work with traditional publishers, because there's no one at the publishing house that has your best interests at heart. Yep. They have their own, so you need someone who has your best interests at heart, and that's mm -hmm. what an agent does. Mm -hmm. Can I tell a funny story? 
Yes. Okay, good. Absolutely. So at this one independent publisher I worked at a couple years ago, uh, we would have, you know, like quarterly meetings with like the distri our, distri our distributor. And uh, the sales VP there, no matter which cover we showed her, like her response was always like, I don't know if you guys know of this book. It was, it was a big book, I would say maybe five years ago or so, called Beautiful Ruins by Jess Walter. And the cover was of like a Mediterranean coastline or something. Every single book that we would show to her, she would be like, have you guys thought about turning this more like Beautiful Ruinsy? And it was like, not even if it was like, had nothing to do with, like it was completely <laughs> off the genre. But it's like, to your point of like, publishers are going to look for the things that sell and Beautiful Ruins sold incredibly well. Yeah. So they're like, oh, like this the will work thing. Or the snake covers. There was mm -hmm. a massive trend yep. of yeah. snake covers. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I talked as literary agent and traditional, but to get your book into the right reader for independent publishing is very similar, except you have to do all of the research. What you need is the right cover, the right title, and the right subtitle. So the right cover. Your book isn't going to sell if your cover does not look like the top 50 on Amazon or whichever distributor you are using. If it does not look like it belongs in that cover or in that, that top 20 list, it will not sell because readers want to be, you're basically trying to tell your reader, hey, you just read this book. You should really read this one because it looks similar, so it's gonna be similar. You really liked this one, you're gonna really like this one. And then your titles also are very important as an independent publisher. For uh, when I wrote Jane Austen fan fiction, books would not sell if there was not Mr. Darcy or Elizabeth in the title, because otherwise it would just look like another Regency historical romance, and that's not the readers I wanted. I wanted the people who wanted the Jane Austen with those characters. And then your subtitles for like paranormal or contemporary romance, as an independent author, you need to take advantage of those, such as a billionaire romance, or a paranormal romance, or a dark mafia shifter romance. It's literally telling, I know, I just self-plugged myself, we'll talk about it later. Uh, you're literally telling the, your reader who's looking at the page, who's not, <clears throat> excuse me, who is not going to read your blurb more than your first two lines, what the book is. They are just going through because they want to pick up another book because their kid just took a nap and they have two hours to read something. So they're not going to take time. They just see the cover that matches what they already liked. They see a title with keywords and they see a subtitle telling them exactly what genre and what tropes to expect. And so that's how you get independent books. <laughs> Let's, let's get a little bit more into that room where you're all making the decisions sure. about how a book should look. Uh -huh. Like, how do the people at the publishing house decide who the audience is that you want to sell to mm -hmm. and <coughs> where they are mm -hmm. and where they can be um, found? Okay. Well, I feel like the most of those decisions generally kind of fall, at least in the very beginning, to the acquisitions editors because they're the ones doing all the research on, like, comparative titles and if there's a market for this trend that like people actually care about that kind of stuff um so once it gets to marketing i feel like hopefully they've already figured out that there is a market for it because if it gets to marketing there isn't you're pretty screwed like you can't do much you know um to be perfectly honest 
So, um, I don't, yeah, I mean, like, I don't know where to go with that question apart from if there's not a market by the time it gets to you and that decision's already been, been made, you kind of just, like, throw a bunch of crap at the wall and see what sticks, you know? So, so, so like, assuming that the acquisitions people have yeah. made a decision where there is an audience that exists, uh-huh. how do you interpret their, um, I guess, their, like, research mm-hmm. um, and what they tell you is out there mm-hmm. in order to, like reach the audience Mm -hmm. well I mean I would say you know it's kind of it's not obviously not the same for every book but a lot of it these days is like social media of course a lot of you know making connections there a lot of uh again like hopefully you know the author has some kind of platform that they can use to sort of reach out to an audience that it's great if it's already built in and then you don't have to do quite as much work um, and again, like signings, readings, conferences, trade shows, all that kind of stuff where they, you know, like their audience is going to be, um, I think that's really valuable too. And then just more traditional stuff. Like we still do advertising. We still do, you know, like co-op and bookstores and all that kind of stuff that still, that still exists. So I don't know. Does that answer that question? Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Okay, your turn. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, um, from the author's point of view, it is very disheartening when, you know, you get a rejection letter from a publisher that says, we just don't think there's a market for this right now. Or I've heard, um, we just had a book just like this that we put all of the dollars into and it failed. So we don't want that anymore. Um, but I, I just want to say, like, no book is ever dead because the market changes. And you know what? Like, vampires are going to be back somewhere. <laughs> So is dystopian, and they, everything comes around. So, like, I've had several books. I just finished. I just turned in a first draft of a middle grade book that five years ago, a different editor, a different house didn't want, and uh, I ended up moving houses and having a new editor. And I pitched it to her in a list of like twenty different ideas because I thought I'll just throw that one in. Nobody wants it. <laughs> Why not? And that's the one she picked out of twenty ideas, and it's you know now done. So, you know, don't give up on your ideas. It just means that it might not be the right time right now for that idea, but you might have to shelve it and until and wait until there is a market for it. All right. So I would like you to speak again because there is a uh, chapter in Save the Cat Writes a Novel all about pitching. Yeah. Um, can you kind of talk a little bit? I know that it's very complicated and brings all the moving parts from Save the, Save the Cat into there, but... Um, if you can kind of sum up how you would make like a short, very short and like a slightly longer pitch of your book. Um, sure. So I usually, uh, when I'm coaching authors, I usually tell them to develop four different pitches. Um, the first is a logline, which is a one sentence description of your book that should have, um, something about the main character and something about the, some kind of flaw that they're trying to overcome. Um, It should hint at some sort of inciting incident that happens to them, and it should hint at some sort of new world or new adventure that they go on, um, and additionally hint at some sort of conflict that they experience. And I know that sounds like a lot for one sentence, um, but it is totally doable. Like a awkward orphan boy discovers he has magic powers and goes to a school for witches and wizards where he finds out that the evilest wizard of all time is trying to kill him. It's one sentence, and we got a flaw that he's awkward, we got a new world that he enters, which is this magical witchers and wizards school, and we have a conflict that an evil wizard's out to get him. So it's totally doable, and um, I have a lot of examples of more loglines in my book. Um, And then the second pitch I tell people to do is an elevator pitch, which is sort of like an extended version of the logline. It's a little bit longer, it's a little bit more 
colloquial. It's, you know, the elevator pitch is like named after if you were to get stuck in an elevator for, no, not get stuck, but if you're riding an elevator from floor one to floor 20 and you've got 30 seconds and like the head of Random House is in the elevator, you know, because that happens. <laughs> um, and, and they say, oh, you're a writer, what's your book about? And you have these 20 floors to basically tell them and sell it to them. So that's called an elevator pitch. And then um, probably the most important in terms of getting agents and getting published is what I call the short synopsis, uh, which is usually like a three-paragraph, half-page to full-page uh, synopsis of your book. And um, I break down exactly how to do that in Save the Cat, but that's what's probably going to go into your query letter when you're looking for agents. Um, and if it's really good, your agent's literally going to copy and paste it into their query letter that goes to publishers. And if it's really good, they're going to copy and paste it into their query that goes to the media and the bookstores and all that. So a good short synopsis can go a long way. Um, and then the final pitch I tell people to do is a long, a long synopsis, which is kind of a synopsis of the whole book. Uh, the reason you would need something like that is um, if you're... If you're pitching a book to an agent, and a lot of times they will ask for the first three chapters and a synopsis, um, and they want to see where the story is going without having to read the 400-page uh, book. So those are the four I tell people to start with, and they kind of grow on each other. From they they kind of if you get you start with the logline and you kind of build out from there. Um, and I tell people to start with the logline because it's actually a lot harder to write one sentence than it is to write a four-page synopsis. Um, but if you can tell your entire story in one sentence, then you know what the story is. If you can't do that yet, then you haven't quite defined the story in your head and what you're trying to say. There you go. I, I just <laughs> talked for a while there. So actually, going off of that, <clears throat> as an independent publisher, you're pitching right to your readers. And What's really important is that log line because that's the only thing that they are likely to read when they're browsing on their phone. And so a log line that I was thinking of earlier was like a billion or billionaire Mark meets his match in the young teacher Camilla. I can remember this. <laughs> young teacher Camilla in the small mountain town of Zigzag. What that is, that's telling you it's a billionaire and a billionaire romance with a potentially virgin teacher, because keywords. And then <laughs> th there's a whole, like, code word thing that romance or romance readers know. But it's also going to feature a mountain, and which means rugged billionaire. Or Because, surprisingly, there are a lot of billionaires who live in cabins <laughs> in the mountains, according to mountain men romance. Exactly what they're going to be getting. So that's great. Logline is great. I'm loving this, like, two different markets that we're in. And I'm learning so much from you. <laughs> that was my design. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not just a coincidence. <laughs> I'm just so much about 
have books? Do I have a first pair of my chance? Can you Here. tell me what that is? <laughs> um, okay, so I think you've already touched on this a little bit, but um, um, so yeah, we were talking about if you want to make money as a self-published genre author that you write to the audience specifically. Um, is there a different way that a traditional author may approach that? And also, after that, Marie, can you put a finer point on that? Because yeah. I can tell you want to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you would ask a hundred different uh, traditionally published authors, and they'd probably have a hundred different answers because it's it's such a personal choice on you know on, on your creative process. Um, I definitely have my audience in mind when I'm writing, especially for younger. Uh, for my younger books, like for the tweens or the younger teens, um, I like keeping my books clean because I like them to get into middle schools. I like them to get into Scholastic Book Fair, which is a whole huge market that is really great. Um, but they're not going to take it if it's got certain content, certain language. Um, so that, you know, I keep that in the back of my head. Um, I also, you know, I want... I want, I want to write the kind of books that kids don't have to hide from their parents. And it's fine to have those kind of books. I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to censor those books, but the kind of books that I write are, are those kinds. Um, and so I, I keep that in mind. But then at the same time, like, I write the kind of books I want to write. And I tell the stories I want to tell. And when I'm inspired by something, that's what I write. I, I try not to... I try not to curb myself too much based on what I think somebody's going to want or what I think's going to sell. Um, but at the same time, I'm in a place in my career where I sell the book before I write it. So I kind of know if the publisher is going to want this idea. When you're first starting out, you know, you're, it's a different story. You've got to write something that you hope the publisher is going to buy and you have to finish the whole thing first, which is very daunting. And it ends with a lot of unpublished manuscripts, which I have as well. Um, so that's when you really have to kind of look into these questions that we've been answering about how to find that market and doing the research and finding out what editors are buying today. So I definitely agree as when I was in traditional, I was like, don't write to market, like write the book you want to write, especially because I focused on speculative fiction, specifically adult fantasy. It's like, that market changes so quickly that the books editors buy today and make deals of today, they're not going to come out for two years and the market could be totally different. So yeah, if you're wanting the traditional route, my advice was always write the story you really want to write. As an independent publisher who wants to make money, I still write what I want to write, but I see, I list what my favorite things to write about are. I'm like, okay, what do I really love? I love enemies to lovers. I love forced proximity. I like the chosen one. I, I love these tropes. And how can I fit these into a market? And there are ways to do that. And you just have to study tropes, which are not bad. They are just story elements. They are the building blocks of a story. Every genre has tropes. Every genre uses them and if you break them your readers aren't going to understand why they aren't really a fan of your story but they'll know something was wrong and that you disappointed them and so what I do is I find all of my tropes that I love I look at the current demands in the audience and I figure out can I write something to the current demands 
that is still everything that I love to write. Mm -hmm. And more often than not, once you do this for a while, you definitely can. So that is how I let my audience affect my writing. Like, I do, I see what they want, but I still write a book that I love, but also one that they're going to want. So, yeah. Yeah, it's really easy when you're actually a 12-year-old girl at heart to write yeah. for a 12-year-old audience. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to come back to the one that you hinted at earlier, Marie. Um, <laughs> how do you make your audience angry? Corinne, I think you might have something to say. Some ideas. How do you make them mad? Well, I think uh, sometimes if you're J.K. Rowling and you say something on Twitter, that's <laughs> uh, no, Sorry. Um, I mean, it's true. It is true. But let's not be a dead horse. Anyway, uh, I think sometimes if you, if your audience is expect their expectations are sort of like heading in one direction and you give them something completely different that they're not expecting. Um, that can sometimes, I don't know if it makes them mad, but it's probably very disappointing if they sort of look to you for like one particular genre or you're writing whatever and you're like, oh, I just want to try something different. You know, I don't know that they'll come with you, you know, or all of them will sort of follow you. Um, so I would say that that's a good way to probably make your audience mad or just disappoint them in general. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's always a fine balance between giving them what they expect and surprising them. Um, you know, if you write a book that's too predictable, then everybody's like, it was so predictable. I'm like, well, it was a rom-com, what do you expect? <laughs> um, but at the same time, so I, I like the quote, I think it's William Goldman, who said, give them the ending they want, but not in the way they expect. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what I always strive to do, is I try to give them the ending that I think they're going to want, um, but I try to give it to them with a twist, because I'm like, I'm not going to just give it to you. Um, I'm going to give it to you with my own twist. Um, audiences get angry when, yeah, you don't give them a happy ever after um, if the character doesn't end up with who they think it is, but they're usually, that usually happens to me. Um, my audiences get really angry that I don't write sequels to my standalones. Um, I, I write, I write sci-fi series and I write regular standalones, uh, rom-com standalones, and they, that's probably the number one fan letter I get is, why aren't you writing a sequel to this? And then they usually pitch me an idea. Like, you could make it about this character who falls in love with that character. And I'm like, just go write it. Got it, I'll it out. Um, so I think that maybe, it's not really angry, it's just, it, it's always great though. I mean, I think whenever you anger someone, it means you've engaged them. And it means you've made them feel. And honestly, I, would, I will take a one-star review or a three-star review, because a one-star review is like means I got to you. I got to you on some level that made you go, one star, versus eh, three stars, which I'd much rather do. What are we talking about? Make them mad. Make them mad. Right. No, I, I got caught up on that one star review because I, I'm the author, so they always tell you, don't go to Goodreads, don't read no, your reviews. See, I love my I, <laughs> I love them. For one thing, I, I'm confident enough in my writing skills that... I, I'm not worried about someone crapping on my book, but I also know I'm like, hey, my books aren't going to be for everybody. There are going to be people who don't like them. And I got so excited when I got a one-star <laughs> review because as an independent author, that means enough people have read your book that someone doesn't like it. It's true. <laughs> I hate getting like 45 star reviews. I'm like, come on, someone just hate it. <laughs> Make it look more authentic. Because I see a book that only has 40 
like, is this someone just like giving out free copies for five star reviews? Paid all their friends. Yeah, yeah. paid all their friends, yeah. even though that's against Amazon's terms of service. Don't do that. <laughs> even though they kept my grandmother's review up on my book. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> it's all cats, but luckily, oh, <laughs> yeah. luckily everyone was like, don't worry, it just reads like she borrowed her winter 2019 was like five years Mm -hmm. but uh where people got in a tip because they were trying to say that their books were romance and that romance doesn't have to end with a happily ever after and everyone was like we're about to throw down (laughs) because romance has to have a happily ever after or it's not a romance. One John. rule. One rule <laughs> is the being, or is the two partners get together and have a happily ever after or a happily ever for now. Like yeah. a happy for now. And when we break that, oh, it pisses people off. And they're like, why is this in romance? It shouldn't be a romance. It should be a tragedy. I don't care if he dies and she's sad and she still loves him like he died they're not happy it's not a romance that's like literary fiction at that point or whichever genre and another thing i've noticed so getting off of that rant because that was last summer uh getting off of that rant another way to make audience mad at you is something i toyed with and i had to do it really delicately in my first series because it like people, other authors were killing off uh, their love interests, and it was making people mad. And because that's another thing, you don't kill off the love interests, even in a reverse harem. Like, you don't kill off a harem member, it pisses people off. And this is like a six figure audience. Like, you can make six figures not easily anymore, but you can make it. And so, like, it's not a small niche, it's not a small genre. And so when you have a lot of readers mad at you, it, it can really tank your royalties. And so what I did is I did kill the character, and then I immediately brought him back in the second or the next chapter because <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna terrify you and make you think that I did kill him. And then hey, look, don't forget this is a magic book, so <laughs> he comes smart. back, and I've already set up the magic system so it makes sense. And people were like, I got so scared, but then you brought him back, and so it was okay. So yeah. Oh, and then I wanted to point out with the covers, as the gentleman said, you don't put the wrong cover on your book. You don't want to put a contemporary cover on a paranormal cover because when someone goes to read it, they're going to be like, this is not what I wanted. And they are going to review badly. Sorry. <laughs> it's my cue. That's my problem. Well, she was looking at you, so I thought you were going to like, say more. Um, no, okay. So, last question before we open it up um, to questions from the folks who are here. Um, so, Jessica, in particular, because you are having uh, a couple of your books uh, turned into films, right? And so, we've come to know in publishing that we're not just competing with other books. Um when we create them and try to sell them, 
but we're creating, uh, we're competing against all forms of attention getting media, um, social media, films, etc., TV. Um, so with all of that stuff out there, do you find that there is an overlap in um, those audiences, like film audiences in particular, and people who get really into books? And if so, or if not, like how would someone get as much audience out of that as possible? Um, well, more so than my books being developed is um, I wrote a book that is an adaptation of how to write a screenplay. Um, so Save the Cat is originally a screenplay writing guide, and I took the same philosophy and the same methodology, and I said, actually, this works for books, um, for novels, and I wrote uh, an adaptation of it. Um, because what I found is, yes, we are competing with movies, we're competing with TV, we're competing with everything, um, and we're competing with a rapidly diminishing attention span of the public, um, which means that our pacing has to be fast. And we have to have all the right beats in all the right places. And when we are competing with things like movies, um, audiences are used to seeing a certain structure and a certain timing of these beats, of these plot points. So when we write our novels, the, the closer we can stay to those, the more familiar the structure is going to feel and the more engaged the reader is going to feel. Um, and this structure is not something that was invented by Blake Snyder, who wrote Save the Cat. It's something he just noticed that has been around for all of time in all of storytelling. Um, so, so the more we can stick to that and use that as a template, the more uh, likely that people are going to keep reading and finish. Um, in, in the same vein, I think when you write books that feel like movies, there is sort of a, like I said, it's a pacing thing, but it's also this, like, this level of excitement. Um, but I also think that it doesn't hurt to pitch your books in comparison to movies. So I often say when you're pitching a book, especially to the public, um, that you should always have a comp, which is short for comparable. And so I always say, like, um, my Unremembered Trilogy was uh, The Matrix, sorry, not The Matrix, The Maze Runner meets Orphan Black. So there's like a, a book and a TV show mixed together. And the more kind of genre, uh, mediums you can bring into your pitch, like if you can take a book and meld them together, it's like this meets this. You know, it's like Star Wars meets, you know, Pride and Prejudice. I don't know, someone has to write that. Um, <laughs> then you're going to get both of those audiences in with that pitch. Um, and because movies are so visual, it's easier for someone to imagine what it's going to be like if you compare it to a movie. I totally agree. Uh, my co-authored series, uh, The Rosewild Academy of Magic, we pitched it and advertised it as the magicians meet Harry Potter. And people were snapping it up. And kind of on that too, pub independent publishing is so fast. Like the market changes so quickly. Over the summer, Academy Books exploded. Everybody wanted Academy Books in a lot of romance genres and so and even non-romance genres a lot of YA independent books were also academy and what's the academy book academy books is basically centered around the characters in an academy like I a lot of them are YA well not YA I can go on a rant about that <laughs> but uh, they're younger they're high school age so that's why they classify it as YA 
even though the content is not YA. And, uh, or you can be in college, uh, which is what my setting was, because I was like, I'm not writing YA. And my characters have sex on the page. Like, this is not YA. And so a big part of that that we saw was the Umbrella Academy came out on Netflix. Suddenly readers in the big Facebook groups were like, is there any books like the Umbrella Academy? And now we're seeing, are there any books like The Witcher? Like what? So we get as independent authors because our market changes so quickly and we have to put out books so quickly. Well, and so you can wrong. put them out And quickly. we can put them like out Like we quickly. have to wait at least a year and a half. Yeah. Whereas those windows. Exactly. And so we see these trends. We see these readers who are posting in big reader groups like, hey, does anyone have books like this? We're like, we see the demand growing in the audience. We're seeing an organic growth of a new audience. And we can start pumping out books. In three months in my reverse harem genre, we counted over 400 books were releasing in those three months for Academy. Like, it, the market got oversaturated so quickly. But it's because so many people wanted them. And so, yeah, we're competing with the, uh, the binge-watching of Netflix and these new movies coming out like the, uh, on Amazon Prime, like The Expanse, and all these great movies that a lot of these uh, binge-readers also binge-watch. And they'll ask for books like that, and we can suddenly start providing those books. Especially now that Amazon lets you um, do pre-orders for a year now as an independent author, you can now put up a pre-order for more than 90 days and be like, hey, look, I'm already getting pre-orders. You should get this. You wanted this. Let me write the book now. <laughs> so. Isn't Pride and Prejudice with Star Wars, isn't that just like Han Solo and Princess Leia? Just getting started and I do a lot of genre hopping so as I'm getting started and I'm getting you know I'm going to have an audience that expects you know if I get one book out they're going to expect something but can't how do I fulfill the expectation of the audience when I know the next book is you know this one was science fiction and the next one's a mystery are you trying to go traditional or independent I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm going to go on the record on Hyper Pub Scout and say that if you are writing a book and you independently publish it, do not then go try to sell that already published book to an agent. They can't do much for you. Like, they really can't. So if you're going to save a book and go traditional, keep writing, because the solution to anything as an author is just write another book. Uh, it's true. <laughs> it's true. Like, just write another book. And so save that book, write another book. If it doesn't sell within whatever time frame you decide to an agent, you can go ahead and self-publish it then, or you can save it and try to wait for the market to change. But if you're independently publishing and you want a genre hop, that's going to really mess with your author branding. And Branding is really huge for both independent authors and traditionally published authors because you start getting known for something. 
and I'm kind of a bad example because on my pin name I I have uh, second world fantasy as well as contemporary paranormal on mine but I've done that specifically to I've made my brand fantasy adventure and romance and so long as my books contain and focus on those elements my audience knows that that's the type of book I write is something that deals with fantasy adventure and romance and so you really need to consider what your brand is and that is something that especially if you're starting out as an independent author you want to go in with that idea because if you're starting out brand new as an independent author you you need to build your audience because you can't just throw a book out there and like hope it's going to take off because most likely it's going to sink <laughs> i hate to say it it's most likely going to sink and so if you go into it with as much knowledge and as much fortification basically of your brand as you can you can be like look i write science fiction mystery and so long as you do a few books like that once you get your core thousand readers because you want to try to aim for 1,000 readers that will always buy your books, and that's when you can have a sustainable audience. Those readers will then start buying anything that you write. And so independent publishing is, as a career, is also a long game, kind of like traditional publishing. Like, it's a long game. you got to keep putting out new books. you got to, you can't expect to be living the life of, you know, Brandon Sanderson by the end of your first year. So, it's a slow game, slowly build it up, and then once you're established, that's when I would suggest you can start genre hopping. Um, yeah, I absolutely agree with the branding. Um, I, I started out doing rom-coms, I also write sci-fi, I just released a space opera trilogy, um, so I'm definitely a genre hopper, because for me, I get bored writing <laughs> the same genre, I just am like, I've told this story already, I need something different. Um, but if you're just starting out, I don't think there's any harm in testing the market either with different genres. So, you know, let's say you write a mystery and you put it out there and it doesn't do well, or you try to get it traditionally published and you can't. And then at the same time, you're working on a rom-com and then send that one out. Maybe that one will do better. I, I don't think there's any harm in, in when you're first starting out, it's trying different things. Um, because maybe you won't find an audience in the genre you think, and maybe you'll find it in something else. Um, so I, I hate to tell people like limit yourself as a writer. It's already so hard to be a writer. Like you should be passionate about what you're writing. So if tomorrow, you know, if you finish a book tomorrow and the next day you're passionate about writing something completely different, then write that too. Like just put your work out there and, and maybe you'll find that one of them hits and the other doesn't. Maybe you'll find that they both hit and then you'll have two audiences. Um, I can't say for sure whether... My rom-com uh, readers also read my sci-fis. Maybe if I had just written rom-com this whole time, I would basically be, you know, no. Jenny Han, <laughs> which I'm not. Um, but, uh, but, you know, another great example, which, which kind of speaks to what you said, is um, Stephanie Perkins, who wrote uh, Anna and the French Kiss and uh, Isla and the Happily Ever After and Lola and the Boy Next Door. I might be confusing the titles. Um, she did so well in the rom -com, uh, YA rom-com scene and then decided she was going to write a slasher. And it's called There's Someone in My House. And it was her first time hitting the New York Times list. She has a Netflix series based on it going, I think, maybe it's Netflix, maybe it's something else. But she just, like, I mean, it took off. 
And here's someone who was like, we always thought of Stephanie Perkins as the rom-com author. And she just was like, no, I don't want to be the rom-com author anymore. I want to be a slasher author. And so, you know, I think more power to her. Like, don't pigeonhole yourself in to try to fit a market. I would agree with both of those responses. I think uh, it is really important um, to Bree's point of um, establishing your core sort of like thousand readers to start with. I think once you have your reputation and people come to expect like a certain thing from you um, and then when they're going to read, you're, they're going to read pretty much anything you write, you know, because they love you and it doesn't matter. You could like write, I don't know, yeah. a calendar and they'd be like, great, I want it. <laughs> um, What's on June 1st? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think like once you establish that and you have a reputation with those people and they'll follow you, that's totally, you can do whatever you want. You know, like, yeah, write a slasher. Why not? We yeah. need more of those. So yeah, yeah. So particularly with indie publishing, you were talking about the core thousand readers. Is there a limit or a burnout for them on how many they'll buy from you a year? What's the sweet spot there? Can you burn your audience out with the number of books you write? Too many books. I would say that no, you can't burn your audience out. Um, I mean, okay, so there's a lot of drama surrounding this and I won't get into it but Alexa Riley. She is now banned from Amazon. They're, uh, it's a duo of writing partners. Um, and the Get Louders were going after them saying they were scammers and ghostwriting. Who knows if they were? I firmly believe they weren't scamming the way that the Get Louders claim. But they were releasing every two weeks. They were quite literally millionaires. But it's because it's what they love to do. They were like, I like these short stories. 25,000 words. Yeah, like, it's novellas. They're high-heat, over-the-top romance. And women, and probably some men, just lapped them up. And so, like, it got to the point where their husbands were got to be, like, trophy husbands who took care of the house. And all they did was write these over-the-top, high-heat romances that were the same beats and same things every time. But their readers loved it. Like, they were getting massive pre-orders. They were getting massive sales they were jumping to number two in the entire amazon bookstore like they were huge and then amazon decided to ban them but uh there's a whole there's a whole drama going on we have no idea what's going on with them because they are talking illegal and being quiet about it as you should when you have a scandal like this be quiet anyways (laughs) what you can do is you can burn out your readers and your audience on failed promises there is an author who, there's actually multiple authors who have repeatedly put up pre-orders for a lot of books and then claimed some life issue happened and canceled them. Somehow got their pre-order privileges back, put them all up again, canceled them again, and people, their audience has started to be like, I'm going to wait until the book actually comes out. And then what happens then is they've found other authors to read. And so once you start breaking your promises and ruining your brand with them, or your brand becomes the person who, the author who can't publish Mm -hmm. or the author who has published books that they promised a year ago, or basically that's the brand you become. And that's how you can burn out readers. So I wouldn't say that you can burn out readers with too many books. That also depends on the market saturation. Like, if everybody in that genre is putting out that many books, 
that market is going to be really saturated. And then as an independent author, that means the royalties that you make are going down. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole market flow with that. And if you sustain through it, once that oversaturation drifts away, the people who really love that genre will keep reading it. But there's going to be a really hard time financially with your royalties. And if you can survive making it through that, like if you have a partner uh, like I do, like the only reason why I can make this as my job and deal with the ebbs and flows is because my husband works for Nike. And anyways, back to books. <laughs> yeah, you, so long as you don't release, so long as you don't break your promises to your readers with your branding and what books you're putting out, you're not going to burn them out. Thank you. So I've heard a couple of comments about um, if you can't, if, if you aren't finding your audience, go ahead and put the book in the drawer. As an independent author, if the audience doesn't exist quite yet, is there a drawback to going ahead and publishing it? Accepting that it might not make sales right away, but seeing if it can find an audience. (laughs) (laughs) So if your book isn't doing well when you first pitch it or first publish it for independent publishing, I don't immediately say that there's no audience. What I say is that there's a problem with the book, uh, with how it's presented. What's your cover look like? What's your blurb look like? Are they, there's, as I was saying with tropes, those are story elements. Every book has tropes, even if you say you're not writing with tropes, you are. And so identify those and put them in the blurb, put them in the log line, look at what genre might be closest like if you're writing post apoc but it's like I don't know I'm trying to come up with like a hospital drama ER but it's post apoc you're gonna want to do a post apocalyptic uh, cover you don't want to put a dude in scrubs on it like post apoc readers are gonna get it with Manchester just not uh, and so. I would say definitely, like, building your back catalog as a independent author never hurts you. Uh, but you want to keep your branding cons- consistent. We often, the six-figure six authors recover their books every year to match the market. Because, yeah, like, I'm about to recover uh, all of my Magical Kingdom series. Because the market's changed. Like, these, there's more demand for fantasy or romantic fantasy but my covers are outdated now and so the readers are aren't going to be attracted <coughs> so I update them suddenly they're selling better and then I look at the blurb I've gone through and changed my blurb like four times because as an independent author we can do that we can go back and see what's going on wrong and fix it I changed the ending to my first book because I didn't see a good sell through. I didn't change it very much. All I did was make it more hooky and cliffhangery to the next book. Because coming from traditional publishing, I was like, I can't just do a drop-off cliffhanger. I have to have a complete contained story in my first book and then something. And the uh, Pulp Fiction writers were like, no, I'm good. Like, this is a complete story. So I was like, okay, let me drop a bomb right at the end after everything. Like, let's make that bomb a little bit bigger. And so, if you don't think that there's an audience out there, there's most likely an audience out there because you wrote it, you wanted to read it. So there's going to be other people who want to read it. It might not be a huge audience, 
But if you can look at similar comparable titles and put it, market it to those people with your tropes and your blurb and your cover, you're going to find readers. The readers are going to find it, and you'll be surprised at how big of an audience there might actually be. So I'm going to tell you a little story about this author who put a book up on his blog. Um, he wrote a sci-fi, and he decided there was no market for it. Uh, except for his friends. So he put it on his blog so that his friends could read it. And his friends started to complain that they couldn't get it on their Kindle. Um, because it was all, you know, you had to read it on the screen. I don't want to read it on the screen. He's like, fine, I'll put it on Kindle. It was called The Martian by Andy Weir. Oh, oh my God. God. <laughs> and there you go. <laughs> I love it. I love that so much. All right, thank you. Can I go again? Oh. Do you want to go, Lori? Sure. Okay. Uh, more probably for Corinne. Nuts and bolts of marketing. Mm -hmm. We're talking about knowing your audience. Okay. How do you find out, like, your stats of, like, where to market? Spend your marketing dollars. Spend your marketing advertising. Like, where do you find your nuts and bolts of, like, this is where I need to spend my energy? Um, I would say there's probably a lot of research involved in that. Just trying to figure out, like, um... I think just like, yeah, researching uh, like a typical reader for the genre that you're thinking of and, you know, um, just like thinking about their habits and like, where do they spend their time? Do they spend most of their time online? Do they spend most of their time somewhere else? If they're online, like, are they engaging with one platform over another? Um, are they like a person who only read print books? Are they a person who's going to only read like Kindle or a person who's like going to read both of them? Um, so just, yeah, I think you really have to spend time thinking about like certain demographics and what their habits are, um, and then kind of making the decisions from there. You said research, but where would you research? I mean, sometimes it's just as easy as like, if you have a friend who only reads like this certain genre, you know what I mean? Like you ask them like, okay, well, where do you get your books? Like, where do you like, like look for new books? Like, where do you, where are you hearing about things basically? Like, where are you sort of like plugging in to hear about like, I don't know, new authors, like that kind of stuff. Like where are they getting their, their selections from or whatever, like that kind of thing. Does that make sense? I know that doesn't, that's like, you know, <laughs> it's not always ideal. You don't have a friend who's like right. into the genre that you sort of want to, I don't know. Um, but I think that's, and like, I mean, otherwise research, it's just a lot of like, I don't know, Googling. <laughs> I know that's really boring, but it's, it really is. I mean, it's just like trying to, I mean, it's the same thing as like these guys trying to figure out who their readers are. I mean, it's a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of like just putting stuff out of the world and hoping somebody consumes it. And as you can see, they consume it in droves. So, you know, I mean, um, yeah, I think it's just a lot of trial and error. Um. I, so I also do online courses, and uh, every time I create an online course, I create in my head what I call an avatar, and the avatar is my student. It's like the you know generic who am I creating this course for? Um, so I have like you know all these different courses, like one for beginning writers. It's called Foundations of Fiction, and this is the person I when I would create that course, I would picture this person and this writer in my head, and they would ask me questions like. What font size do I use? <laughs> I know, but that's a good question when you're just starting out. You don't know these things. And like, okay, that's the person that I'm creating this course for. I'm not creating this course for the person who's like, how do I put more conflict into the, you know, into the finale or whatever? Because they don't know what the, those things are. So then when I create a course like um, my Save the Cat course, 
I'm creating that course for the person who's going, I need help plotting my novel. I need help with pacing. Um, so it helps me to really, I don't know how this translates much, but it helps me to kind of picture who I'm creating those courses for and the kind of questions they're asking. And, you know, like I picture them in my head and I hold them in my head and I create the course for that person. Um, and that kind of helps me sort of identify who that market is. I'm terrible at marketing. I approach it with the shotgun approach of uh, throwing money at Amazon ads or Facebook ads, mm -hmm. or sometimes like applying to BookBub and crossing my fingers and then getting sad three days later when they say no. Uh, no, there, there are some fantastic independent authors who have mastered marketing and research, but a lot of it's a lot of try fail googling and word of mouth and what would you google though how to do ams ads <laughs> that's what i google and then i talk to my other author friends and i'm like how the hell do you do this and then uh elena Jaden sent me or told me how she breaks it down and i was like that is way too complicated i have 20 hours a week to work on my career i am not doing that it was intense and that's why she now pays a pa to do that yeah. Can I throw a potential answer out? Yeah. 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 One thing that I think is it might be useful is if you have a newsletter, ask them where they found you. You know, if you have a Facebook group or whatever, yeah. whatever your reader contact surface is. Even if it's small. Even you... if it's small. Mm -hmm. How'd you find me? Where'd you find me? Yeah. How'd you hear about me? Uh, yeah, yeah. That's really great. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, yeah. So I hired a social media marketing specialist for uh, my last book launch. She was fantastic. And one thing that she did do, we did a bunch of campaigns where you had to, you know, enter some sort of form to get Thanks. whatever it was. Pre-order, <laughs> you know, it was a pre-order campaign or a giveaway or some sort of contest. Um, and the thing she put in every single form was, how did you hear about this? How did you hear about this campaign? And, you know, there was no drop down. It was just people were just filling it in. Instagram, Jessica's newsletter, uh, an event, you know. And it was really helpful to be able to go back and see where all these people were coming from. Um, and I do the same thing at every signing I go to, like, if, especially if it's a teenager who comes up. Because, you know, like, I care about the adults. Really, I care about you guys. <laughs> but I write for teens. I want to know how the teens are finding my books. So every teenager who comes up to get a book signed, like, how did you hear about this? You know, and they just, they can't wait to tell you. Um, like, my best friend told me, or I'm on your newsletter, or the bookstore sent a thing out. But um, that is key. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and you had another question? Yeah. I Let's say you have a first draft. It's a nice story. But now you're saying, okay, I'm going to do my revisions, and I want to really key into my audience. And I realize I need to add something. How do I know what the audience I'm going to work with wants from this story? What the something I need to add? Beta readers, beta readers, yeah. beta readers. That's my answer too. <laughs> but you were much more eager about it. Yeah. No, like, I love, there's this site, I don't know how long it's been up, but it's betabooks.co. They have a reader directory that you can search like, hey, what are your favorite authors? And it lists reader profiles of people who love these authors or what they like in books. And you can invite them to beta read your book. And you can update them and they can inline comment. But yeah, beta readers or then a developmental editor who uh, knows the genre, but beta readers are free. So that's why I choose them.
What did you say that was? Beta Books. Beta Books. Co. Um, also, in the same vein as critique groups, critique partners. Um, honestly, just Google how to find a critique partner, and there's a really there's some really great um, information about the, out there. But finding people who are writing in your same genre can really help because not only are they giving you feedback, but you're reading theirs. Um, and as soon as you put on your editor hat, you become a different kind of writer. So the um, the act of having to give feedback to someone else puts your brain in a totally different state where you are now looking for that thing that you're looking for on your own. And you'd be amazed how when you go, huh, I didn't do that. And she did. Or she's missing this. Am I, did I do that in my book? And it just it just really opens your brain up in a, in a new way. I wanted to piggyback on that real fast just because I think it might help. I was watching the Romance Writers Summit that Chris Kennedy put on over the summer. And one of the things that a lot of the authors she had on talked about over and over was if you find yourself at a point where you can't, um, you know something's wrong and you can't figure out what it is or you're stuck, go back to the last decision your character made and play with the idea of flipping it around and having them do the opposite and just see what happens. Because a lot of times the problem's further back than you think it is yeah, and you true. can push sure. forward that way. So piggybacking off of that, which is, uh, I'm not sure if uh, it picked it up, but it was, uh, if, you, if you're struggling with something, go back to see what your character's last decision was and play with flipping it around. One thing that that reminded me of was Mary Robinette Cowell said that if you're having an issue in your third act, go back to your first act yes. because it's usually there. And that's what the mice quotient comes in. Uh, which is a plotting technique that was developed by Orson Scott Card. I know, I know, <laughs> but it's actually really smart. And yeah. and so what that is, is it sets up in your first act the promises that you're making for your character. Like the Hobbit's first act, or one of its promises was uh, Bilbo Baggins is leaving the Shire. That is the Milu, Milu, I don't I just read. I don't speak out loud. I don't know how to pronounce really Yeah, there we go. Uh, and so to fulfill that promise in the third act, you've got to show him coming back. And that's why you see him coming back, and it takes like 30 freaking minutes because it takes forever. Sorry, I'm not actually the biggest Tolkien fan. But it, they're really good. Tolkien is really good at showing the mice quotient, which is you make promises... So you make a promise, or you can make multiple promises in the first act. And then in the third act, you mirror those promises by solving them. So whatever is the last promise you made in your first act is the first promise you solve in the third act. And so the first one you made in your first act is the last one that's resolved. It should mirror your first act. And then your act two is a try-fail system. That's when your characters are trying to fulfill the promises, but they fit. So yes, they do something, but this happens. Or no, they can't do this, and this happens. And then your act three is try wins. Like, yes, and they did this. Or no, but they found out, actually, that it's not that bad. So that's what I would say if you're struggling. Like, look at your first act, too, and see what promises you've made or, and what you need to get your characters to. And then, yeah, just flip, play with it, put them in different situations, and be like, hey, what's going on? Okay, 
Well, uh, let's, uh, let's give our panelists a hand. And we would love if you would follow us on Facebook, Hybrid Pub Scout, on Twitter, at Hybrid Pub Scout, on Instagram, at Hybrid Pub Scout Pod, visit our website, hybridpubscout.com. We'd also appreciate you giving us a five-star review on any of the platforms you use to listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and thanks for giving a rip about books.